0: Take a treat retreat at McDonald's right now. Get a cafe iced coffee in any size and any flavor for just ninety nine cents until eleven a.m. Price of participation may vary. Just moments ago, the Trump administration announced that they won't be filing any charges against the NYPD officer Daniel Pantaleo for the murder of Eric Garner. As you know, Eric was murdered exactly five years ago tomorrow, and for a few moments today. I wanna unpack who all has failed this family because they failed them for five straight years. And then I wanna quickly pivot to teaching us a key lesson on how we can make systemic change together. As you know, we're building a special team that we call the Breakdown Crew. It's our action steps team. And I have a book coming out called Make Change. It comes out next year. And I'm gonna teach you some of the main points of the book on how we can fight for change and win. Let's dig in together. We're going to win, all right? We're going to organize, and we're going to win. This is Sean King, and you are listening to The the Breakdown. The the, the Breakdown. The the, 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 the Breakdown. I'm not 100% sure that you would even know me, at least... Know me in the way that you know me now as somebody who's fighting against police brutality, against mass incarceration. I don't even know if you'd know me in that way had Eric Garner not been murdered. And you may have heard me tell this story before, but it's really a huge part of my personal origin story. And I I was not doing this work in the summer of 2014, all the way back in July of 2014, five years ago. I was actually working at an environmental charity called Global Green. And I was the director of communications at this charity for the national office. And and really, what that means is I was overseeing emails and social media and and press releases. And I use a lot of those skills in the work that I do now. But I was at my desk, at my cubicle, and I got a Facebook message from a buddy of mine that I went to Morehouse with. And uh, this is the middle of the summer. In 2014, and our offices were in a really beautiful location just a few blocks away from the beach in Santa Monica in Los Angeles in Southern California. And I'm at my cubicle and I get a Facebook message from a buddy of mine that I went to Morehouse with who was from New York. And a guy that he knew had just posted the video of Eric Garner being killed. We, at the time, we didn't know Eric's name, it had not gone viral. It had not been shared widely, and it had been posted on YouTube at the time, and my friend described what was in the video, and I hadn't clicked the link yet, but many of you have probably had this type of moment happen before where you're in front of people whom you aren't sure if they share your political views or you're not sure if they understand the world the way you understand it, and so I'm at my desk And I don't know if I should click on this video. Now, you have to go back in time with me a little bit because five years ago, when you just say it like that, doesn't seem like a long time ago, but so much has changed in five years because at that point in time, there had never been a viral online video of a fatal incident of police brutality. Now, sadly, horribly, we've now seen Dozens, if not hundreds, of these videos since this video. But at that moment in time, I had never seen a man die before. I had never seen a man literally be alive in one moment, fully alive, fully free, and in that incident, go from being fully alive to breathing his last breath. I've seen that in the movies. But fiction and reality are very different. And my friend described the scene for me, and he said, Sean, you're gonna have to do something about this. And he said, Sean, there's a a middle-aged black man on a random street corner in New York. I don't think he said Staten Island at the time. He said a random street corner in New York. And in broad daylight, the officer chokes him to death like Radio Raheem from Do the Right Thing. And my friend described it in the message as like a UFC style chokehold that was put on this man. And my thought was like, what the hell? And we're like And, you know, forget me for my retrospective ignorance, but my thought was like, what the the hell did this man do? Like, my friend described that an officer walked up to the man, put a chokehold on him, and literally choked him to death. But what my friend described was a man who was unarmed, nonviolent, and was calmly asking the police to leave him alone. And in my mind at the moment, sitting at my cubicle, I was thinking like, there's a missing piece to this story. You have to again, I, I had protested and organized against police brutality before, but I had never seen what I was about to see when I clicked on that video. And I clicked on the link. I waited until lunchtime when many of my colleagues around me left and I clicked on the link. And there was the man that we knew uh, at we, we didn't know at the time. There was the man that we later came to know as Eric Garner. And sure enough, just as it was, it was just as my friend had described, but significantly worse. Eric Garner was literally asking calmly the police to leave him alone. He was explaining to the police that he did nothing wrong, that he broke no laws, that whoever they were called there for, it wasn't him. Eric had actually just broken up a fight that had nothing to do with him. And the police were called because of the disturbance and he was outside chilling. He had been a peacemaker. And what we didn't know at the time is that the NYPD had harassed Eric Garner for years and years and years. And in that moment, you can feel, if you know that now, you can feel the exasperation from Eric Garner as he just begs the police to please leave him alone. And a white police officer, a young white police officer, Daniel Pantaleo, no no longer wants to hear what Eric Garner says and literally walks up behind Eric Garner, and I used to be a UFC and a mixed martial arts fan, and he puts what we would call a rear naked choke on Eric Garner, where with his right hand, he puts his right hand right around Eric's neck in windpipe, and he uses his left hand to lock the choke in, and he wrestles Eric to the ground. And just as my friend described in a Facebook message, you can then begin to hear Eric Garner say, I can't breathe, I can't breathe. At least 11 times, Eric Garner said he could not breathe until he died. And I'm at my cubicle, 2014, not Sean King, Black Lives Matter activist, not Sean King, columnist for The Intercept, founder of the North Star, co founder of Real Justice Pact. None of that existed. I'm Sean King, director of communications for an environmental charity Global Green, at my desk, and I am shook. I've just witnessed a man die. I knew right away that it was completely unjust, that it was wrong. I assumed that it violated policies and laws, and we later came to find out that it violated multiple policies and multiple laws. And I literally never worked another productive day again for Global Green. I That day started Googling and researching, trying to find out what are the policies on chokeholds nationally? What are the what are the federal guidelines and civil rights guidelines for, for choking someone to death? If uh, is a police officer allowed to do this. I I had been an organizer and an activist, but really in a very different phase of my life. And I had become very much a, a father and a husband. We have five kids and and I'm Married and just kind of on the grind in Southern California. And I really didn't know what policies were violated, what laws were broken. I just I knew that this could not be legal. And for the next few weeks before I finally resigned and they should have fired me from Global Green. And I always give them shout outs every chance I get for a few weeks. All I did was begin writing and advocating and organizing justice for Eric Garner. And as many of you know, that summer was a brutal, horrible summer. And many summers are brutal, horrible summers for us. Because literally while people were protesting all over the country for Eric Garner, chanting, I can't breathe, we soon found that a young man, a, a new father, John Crawford, was shot and killed at a Walmart in Ohio that a young brother named Ezel Ford was shot and killed by police, shot in the back, shot and killed by police in Los Angeles, that Mike Brown was shot and killed on Canfield Drive in Ferguson, Missouri. And all of a sudden, not just entire cities, but the entire nation and literally countries all over the world are protesting police brutality in the United States, are chanting Black Lives Matter, are chanting I can't breathe, are chanting hands up, don't shoot. And we are in a moment in July and August, September, October, November of 2014. And then we learned something horrible had just taken place. A 12-year-old boy, literally why we are fighting for justice for Eric Garner, for Ezel Ford, for John Crawford, for Mike Brown, while we're fighting for justice all over the country and all around the world, we learn that a police officer in Cleveland, Ohio, shoots and kills a 12-year-old boy named Tamir Rice. Just a few blocks from his mother's house, it is Thanksgiving break. He is a sweet law-abiding boy. He broke no laws. No one was in danger and a police officer who had literally been fired for his emotional instability from his previous police department. And his supervising officer literally wrote on the human resources file of Timothy Lohman, the officer who killed Tamir Rice, that Timothy Lohman should never work in law enforcement again. Cleveland didn't do a proper background check, hired Timothy Lohman, and within a year he had shot and killed Tamir Rice in less than two seconds of even seeing him at the neighborhood park there in Cleveland. And all over the country and all around the world, we are protesting and fighting for justice for these young men and boys who have experienced police brutality, whose families have been devastated by the loss of their most precious loved ones, their husbands, their fathers, their sons. And I came to know so many of those families and I think the biggest honor of my life, and I I talk very little about it because the relationships are personal, but one of the biggest honors of my life is getting to know and support and walk with hundreds of families who've been affected in the most devastating ways by police violence in this country. I came to know the family of Eric Garner. I came to know the family of Mike Brown, of Tamir Rice, and, and so many others. But I became particularly close with my dear friend Erica Garner. And at the time, Erica was just 24 and 25 years old. I mean, she was 10 years younger than me, and she was not an organizer, an activist. This was a daughter uh, named after her father, the apple of her father's eye, a daughter whose life was completely interrupted when now a viral video of her father's execution, in essence, it was a legal lynching an open public lynching on a street corner in New York. And she becomes an activist, but really she just stays a daughter. She's a daughter fighting for justice for her dad. And day in and day out, she fought for justice for Eric Garner. And I believed in my heart because so many people promised Erica Garner and promised Eric's wife who I came to know and Eric's mother who I've come to know and other daughters and and grandchildren and others. So many people promised this family that they would get justice. And I was actually one of those people. Like I told Erica, don't worry, hang in there. We're going to get justice for your family. And that phrase or some variation of that phrase and, I've shared this story publicly just over the past year. It's taken me a few years to even build up the courage to share this. For at least two years, I said some version of that to dozens and dozens of families affected by police violence. Hold on. Hang in there. We're going to get justice for your family. And I had never thought, there was not a small part of me that thought I was overpromising and underdelivering. Like, I believed that we were going to get justice for Eric Garner, for Erica Garner, for, for the Garner family. Particularly in that case, because it was a city with a newly elected Democratic mayor who came in saying, I will take police brutality seriously. Uh, a white mayor, progressive white mayor who, though, is married to a black woman with with black children and a black son and who campaigned saying, hey, I understand this pain differently than other people. And I'll take it seriously. Our state had a Democratic governor. New York City had a city council almost completely controlled with over 50 Democratic city council people, 99 percent Democratic And the state attorney general was a Democrat like I believed that it was the perfect nexus of circumstances. We had a Democratic president, Barack Obama. We had at the time a Democratic attorney general, Eric Holder, who had been a civil rights attorney, who valued civil rights and who had spoken out against police brutality. And so here we are with people in power at every level. And I'm thinking and speaking specifically about the the murder and the death of Eric Garner. Here we are with people in power who can actually do something about it at almost every level, except at that time, a Republican who was the district attorney of Staten Island. And that was the first recourse for the family. And that was the only place where there was a conservative in power, and they failed first to bring charges against Officer Daniel Pantaleo and other officers for lying on their reports and for being negligent there on the scene. But when the district attorney of Staten Island refused to press charges against the officer who killed Eric Garner, there were literally maybe seven other ways to hold this officer accountable. Of course, first and foremost, he should have been immediately fired by the NYPD. And we hear this story over and over again that there are only a few bad apples in each police department. And study after study proves that, no, there are way more than a few bad apples. Some officers who have boldly talked about this say, no, you know, as many as 20 percent, some say 40 percent of all police officers are corrupt or racist or problematic. But whatever the case Even if we temporarily agree that there are a few bad apples, if we just agreed on that in theory. What we've seen is that police departments don't even hold those few bad apples accountable. And Daniel Pantaleo was absolutely is absolutely one of those bad apples. And the NYPD had a chance. He violated a clear policy. Chokeholds had been banned forever. Fatal force, lethal force, physical force was not even necessary in that moment. Eric was not even being physical or brutal or violent. He literally didn't lay a finger on a soul. And for him to be choked to death was a violation of department policy, but the NYPD failed. But what's powerful in New York is that New York's mayor has oversight of the police department. New York City's mayor can hire and fire the police chief and others. And New York City's mayor, Bill de Blasio, promised the family of Eric Garner. He promised Erica Garner directly. I talked to Erica about this multiple times, promised Erica that they would get justice. He literally attended the funeral and the service and the memorial of Eric Garner and said over and over to the family that he would make sure the family got justice. Well, here we are five years later, And there was no justice for the family. And he's had this power to provide the family justice. Governor Cuomo, again, a Democrat, said multiple times directly to the family that he would make sure that the family got justice and they've gotten nothing. No justice whatsoever. Not from the D.A. in Staten Island, not from the NYPD firing this officer, Not from the mayor who promised it, not from the governor who promised it. But the Obama administration also, and I listen, I know that when we compare Obama to Trump, that Obama is a saint. I get it. I understand it. I believe it. But that does not mean he is flawless or perfect. The Obama administration promised Erica Garner and the Garner family over and over and over again that they would handle the case and that they would make sure that it did not go to the next administration. Now, they didn't just promise the Garner family that. They promised multiple families who were affected by police brutality that because the case was, does this violate the federal civil rights of Eric Garner? And of course it does. Of course it violates your civil rights to be choked to death when you are an unarmed, nonviolent man on a street corner in broad daylight. Of course it violates your civil rights. And the Obama administration and Eric Holder and Loretta Lynch promised not only the Garner family, but multiple families affected by police violence and thousands of families, they promised that they would grant them clemency. And I have literally talked to people inside of the Obama administration who told me, Sean, our entire administration believed so strongly that we were going to be passing the baton to Hillary Clinton, to a Clinton administration, that she would m- probably even keep many of the same people in the Justice Department, that we regretfully did not feel a sense of urgency to close so many of these cases. Because we could not imagine that we would be passing the baton to a Trump administration. Well, the Obama administration, because Mayor de Blasio failed the family, and continues to fail the family to this very day. And Governor Cuomo failed and continues to fail the family. The Obama administration seemed to be a quality option for the family to get justice. And instead. They allowed the clock to run out, even I remember so clearly after the election, the family and many families were praying and begging, please do not let this case go over to the Trump administration. And the Obama administration, and many articles have been written about this, started cramming furiously to work on thousands of things that they were prepared to just pass on to Hillary Clinton, and the clock ran out on them. And on the family of Eric Garner. And I spoke weeks before she passed away. I spoke to Erica Garner and she died at the age of 27, literally because of heart problems. But her health had deteriorated. And I do I do blame the city, the state and the federal government for failing this family and putting them in the position. Where someone like Erica, who could not let go, who would not let go, instead of even caring for her own health, fought day in and day out, 24 hours a day, seven days a week, for justice for her father. It was her obsession. And she fought for it literally until the day she died at the age of 27. And so many people failed this family And of course, the Trump administration was never going to provide this family any type of justice. But blame, there is a lot of that to go around. The Obama administration had years. They had nearly a thousand days to settle a case that was filmed in broad daylight with witnesses. It should have taken weeks, maybe months. They had years and did nothing the Cuomo administration, the de Blasio administration, the Trump administration, all did nothing. And for a few minutes, I want to tell you, and this is for all of you who've signed up at TheBreakdownCrew.com, I want to tell you not only how we get justice, but how we change systems, how we make change together. It can be done, and so much of what we're doing is right but we have to get the right pieces going together, moving together in the same direction at the same time. So let me break it down for you. Break it down. What I've learned in, in really studying, in some ways, in studying my failures, and I particularly mean All of the times that I fought alongside activists and organizers across the country, that I fought for justice for families that had experienced not just police brutality, but all types of injustice police corruption, police violence, racism, bigotry, discrimination. What I have found in all of the times that we fought for justice for those families and got nothing like it, because here's the thing. In 2014, when Eric Garner was killed, he was one of almost 1,200 people who was killed by American police, and not a single person, 0.0%, none of them, nobody, received justice that year, which is extraordinary. We're not talking about a fraction of 1%, not 5 or 10%. We're talking about 0.00%. And what that really means, in some ways, is that it's a conspiracy. And by conspiracy, I mean that the system is rigged. It is set up. It is designed to make justice not almost impossible. It's designed to make justice impossible. And that's what happened in 2014. There was no justice. Now, there were all types of policies and rules and laws that were broken, but no families got justice because the system was not designed to give it. And after doing that in 2014, with the families of Eric Garner and Mike Brown and Tamir Rice and John Crawford and others, doing it in 2015 to fight for justice with the families of Freddie Gray and Sandra Bland, and in 2016, fighting for justice for Philando Castile and Alton Sterling and and Terrence Crutcher and others, and getting no justice in any of those cases, it caused me to evaluate what does justice look like, how do we get it, what does change look like, how do we get it, and it started what I would say is probably a three-year process of me throwing my heart and soul into trying to figure out and trying to crack the code to, to determine how do we make change, what does it look and feel like, And how do we make it? And for the next few minutes, I want to share the lessons that I've learned. And these lessons are at the root of my book, which will come out next year. And I've shared some of these lessons before, but I want to go a little deeper to unpack and explain it because these lessons are going to be really at the root of the action team that we're building together. Because here's the thing. When we started the North Star, which is the parent company of the Breakdown Podcast, our goal was not just to change the news. Now, we do want to change the news, but our goal was really to change the world, to make the world a better, safer, more equitable place for all of us. And in order for us to do that, I want to share four things that we need to make change. All right, let's go. Break it down. The first thing that we need to make change is so deceptive. And I say it's deceptive for several reasons. It's deceptive first and foremost because we often have it. We have this thing. It's absolutely necessary. You are not going to make change without it. And we regularly have it. It's deceptive because when you have this thing, It can cause you to think that change is right on the horizon, that you are right on the precipice of change, that you are right on the on the 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 edge of a breakthrough that you are about to change the game. And the first thing that you need to make change is you need people, okay, and they have to be energized. You need energized people. Now, here's the thing. We often bring that to the table. In 2014, part of why I thought we were so close to change in New York with the family of Eric Garner, in Cleveland with the family of Tamir Rice, in Los Angeles with the family of Ezel Ford, in Ferguson and St. Louis with the family of Mike Brown, in Baltimore with the family of Freddie Gray. Part of why I thought we were so close to making change, to getting justice, was because we had people, and damn it, The people were highly energized. And here's the thing. When you get the way we got in 2014, 2015, 2016, when you get not dozens, not hundreds, not even thousands or tens of thousands, but you get hundreds of people, hundreds of thousands of people, rather, completely energized for change, which is what we had in the Black Lives Matter movement, where we had arguably millions of people who were determined to change the game, particularly when it came to the issue of police brutality, and the people were highly energized. And that energy is what fueled hashtags and trending topics. That energy is what fueled protests where highways and intersections were shut down. It's what, it's what fueled demonstrations across the country. It's what forced the phrase Black Lives Matter into the lexicon of our of our public thinking. And that energy was contagious. All of a sudden, the entire world knew about the problem of police brutality in the United States. And the entire world learned those names that we've shared because we were highly energized for change. It's what fueled us. It's what fueled the marches, the protests the demonstrations, the sit-ins, the die-ins, the hashtags, the trending topics. It's what fueled all of that. And if you allow it, you can have energized people, and it can be dozens, hundreds, thousands, tens of thousands of energized people shutting down bridges, shutting down offices, interrupting meals and businesses. You, you could have energized people in every form and expression that you can imagine. And it can cause you to think like, holy shit, we are about to change the game. And I'll be honest with you, that's exactly what I thought and felt. Because in 2014, I had never seen so many people in so many places so amazingly energized for change. And, and I'm not knocking it. I'm, I'm being serious. I'm talking about from T-shirts that said, I can't breathe, being worn by NFL and NBA players, from people throwing up black fists before games, from taking knees. Like the energy was out of this world. Like it was the first time The energy of the people, particularly directed toward the issue of police brutality, and police violence, that the energy had been at that level. But you have to understand, while energized people are absolutely necessary, essential, vital, I say the bedrock of any movement for social change. That's why I believe any movement for social change, you want young people to be the lifeblood, the fuel, the energy of your movement. And I... I have side eye of any movements and also of any political campaigns that don't have youth buy in. And so young people help bring the energy. But it's not just young people like the 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 Black Lives Matter movement was was an intergenerational energy and inter an intersectional intercultural energy of people from all walks of life, highly energized for change. But that's step one. And what many of us found, and it put activists and organizers across the country in a a horrible position, what many of us found was that it was necessary to have energized people. But what we found is that if virtually, not all that you have, but virtually what you have are energized people, but not the second, third, and fourth thing that I'm going to share with you. If what you're bringing to the table is energized people, energized people alone, what we found is that systems and structures and people in power, guess what, are fully willing to wait out your energy. They're willing to wait you out until your energy declines, disappears, until your momentum begins to wane. They are willing to look at you through the windows of their skyscrapers or out of the windows of their offices Until you are done marching and until people clean up what's left behind, they're willing to wait that out. And what we have found is that energized people are necessary, essential, vital to build awareness and to build momentum. But you also have to have three more things. You you could arguably create a list of 100 things that you need for change, but these are four broad categories. So the first thing you need... Is energized people. Now, let me tell you the second thing. Break it down. So, you need people and they need to be highly energized. But the second thing is, is you need people and they need to be highly organized. All right. It, it's a start to have energized people in the room, in the auditorium, in the streets, online. It, it's necessary to have energized people, but after you have energized people, they have to be deeply organized, and it's it's as necessary as the energy, but we often start with the energy and get to a point where what we're mainly focused on is getting more and more energized people without actually organizing the people that we have. And and I want to talk for a few minutes about this from two different angles. First, I need us to understand that many of the people, systems, corporations, causes, and campaigns, many of the the factors and factions that we're fighting against are highly organized. And if you assume otherwise, you are making a serious mistake— and, and I'm not talking about any one group or corporation. I'm talking about the conglomerate of all the causes and corporations and campaigns that we're fighting against. If your assumption is that they aren't organized, then you're wrong. Like my expertise is particularly in systems of mass incarceration and police brutality. These systems are highly organized and they literally took hundreds of years to build them. They are millions of people with millions of laws, you know, and I'm going to unpack that even more here in, in just a minute. But that we are up against highly organized corporations, causes and campaigns. Do you understand me that it is a mistake for us to assume that because we don't like somebody, because something is infuriating to us, Because it is unjust, because it is evil or problematic, it's wrong for us to then impose our frustration with a thing, to impose on it the idea that it's not organized, that it's not substantial, that it's not serious. And I think we often underestimate the quality of the organization of the people, places and things that we're fighting against. And I want to give us two examples of what it means to be deeply organized. All right. And I say this as somebody who uses social media. I use Facebook, Twitter and Instagram every single day. I use email and phone phone numbers and text messages and email lists. I use technology every day to start to organize people. But that's all that is. Those things are gateways to help you begin to organize people. An email list is not organization alone. So 18,000 of you have signed up at TheBreakdownCrew.com. At TheBreakdownCrew.com, we are organizing listeners of this podcast offline so that we can smartly begin organizing. Well, I have an email list, and it has your email address. For all of you who've signed up at TheBreakdownCrew.com, I have that. But let me give you an example of what it means to be deeply organized. And this is where we're going next. And it's why I want to teach this lesson. Being deeply organized. Here are two examples, but I could give 10. And I talk about this a lot in my book. One idea of being deeply organized is understanding the skills, experience, and expertise of the people who've signed up to be a part of your thing. Whatever your thing is. If it's the breakdown crew, if it's your organization, if it's your cause... An email address does not tell me your background, does not tell me your skill set, does not tell me your passions. It does not tell me what you bring to the table other than the fact that you have access to the Internet sometimes. Unless your email address uh, like literally tells us who you are and what you do somehow, it, it does not explain to me. Your phone number, your email address does not tell me what you're good at, what you are going to be able to contribute to the cause. It does not tell me how your human resources, I mean, you as an individual, it doesn't tell me how your human resources will be best leveraged for social change. And often, if you think about it, think about all the petitions you've signed, causes you've supported, rarely do any of them, including political parties and others, rarely do they take time out to actually say, you know what, we're going to go deeper and we're going to find out who the people are that want to help us fight for this social change. So one deeper form of, of being organized is finding out the skills, expertise, and passions of the people that are volunteering with you. And here's the second example. And it's, this is, this is sometimes more difficult to deliver, but if you do it, It can be so productive and fruitful and helpful. Here would be an example of a way to get very deeply organized for the cause that you're fighting for. Ask the people that are committed to your cause to rack their brains, to spend a day or two thinking through the four or five people that they know that might be able to help this cause. Who are the four or five people that they know in their universe It may mean it's a it's a relative. It may mean it's a lifelong friend. It may mean it's a colleague, a classmate and literally just ask them to commit to getting those four or five people into the cause, into the thing that it is that you're fighting for. Like, let me let me tell you a story. Me and several other people, this was a few years back, were attempting to find somebody who could give us access to a certain political figure. And I mean, like somebody who had a meaningful, substantive relationship with an elected official, like a relative. And we just wanted to be able to persuade them to speak, to, for them to speak to this person on our behalf about a cause that we were fighting for. And for weeks and weeks and weeks, we could not find anybody that fit that description, only to find out long after we needed to find out that the person we were searching for their godson was literally on our list they had signed up we had their email address but they didn't know that we were looking for that and what i'm saying is you may not you yourself you the listener you may not have all the skills and relationships that 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 you need to solve the problem on your own but when we combine, so there are 18,000 people that have signed up for the breakdown crew. If all 18,000 of us leverage the four or five most important relationships that we have to fight for the change that, that it is we want to see, now we're not 18,000 deep. Now we're 60,000 people deep. Do you understand what I'm saying? We're 75,000 deep and with serious, substantive, meaningful relationships. So you need to be. Highly energized, but you need to be deeply, like seriously organized to go up against the things that we're fighting for. And let me tell you the final two. Break it down. You need energized people. You need organized people. And often when I see groups that are highly energized and deeply organized, I get excited because... They they are very few, like they are few in number. Most groups are either deeply organized with no energy or highly energized with no organization. And if you can find a group that's highly energized and deeply organized, they are they are getting the pieces together. The third thing that is necessary to make change and part of why we struggle with this is when we are having a a reactive form of activism and organizing. And I don't mean that as an insult. Uh, That word reactive kind of may have a negative connotation with some people. I don't mean it that way. We often are fighting for people and causes and fighting against systems and structures because something tragic happened suddenly. All of a sudden, Eric Garner is killed. Mike Brown is killed. Tamir Rice, Philando Castile, Alton Sterling, Sandra Bland, all of a sudden there is this horrible incident of injustice where someone is taken from us or there's just some horrible action and we then react to that. Well, in that spirit of reacting to a horrible incident of injustice, It can be incredibly difficult to organize and develop. Listen to me. A plan that is as complex and nuanced as the problem it is you're trying to solve. Say you're energized, you're getting deeply organized, but now you need to develop a plan that is as substantive and serious and complex and nuanced and sophisticated as the problem you're trying to solve. But when we are reacting to an emergency, I say it like this. When your house is on fire, it is hard to develop a strategic plan on the fire code. It's hard to look at policies and procedures When it feels like your whole world is crumbling down on you. But I need us to still, even though that is the reality, that it is hard to plan when you're in a state of emergency. It just is. And it always will be. That over and over again, what I find is that the problems of this world overwhelm the lack of depth of our plans. And I don't I'm not saying while I say this, I'm not pointing fingers. I if any if anything I'm pointing them at myself where I have gone in head first ready to to fight for change, to solve a problem, and I went in with the right heart, the right energy, and I went in beginning to organize people but did not have a plan that addressed the sophistication of the actual problem that we were trying to solve. And here's the thing, the size, the scope, the magnitude of what we are often up against is regularly overwhelming the simplicity of our plans. Again, when I think of the systems of mass incarceration, there are Over two and a half million people that are incarcerated in this country right now. But over the course of any given year, it's over 10 million people who are locked up over the course of any given year in the United States. There are millions of laws. There are over a million law enforcement officers. There are 20,000 police departments and sheriff departments. There are different policies in each of those different union agreements in each of those. There are over 10,000 jails and prisons each with their own policies and locations and procedures and and culture. It is an amazingly complex system. Now, we can be frustrated at any given point in time because a shooting took place or an incident of police brutality took place, and we can point at that and we can talk about white supremacy fueling the system, which is true, and bigotry and inequality and poverty and how all of those things play a factor, and all of that's true. But in the end, we have to say... Are we bringing to this problem a plan that can actually solve the thing that we are deeply frustrated about? And as I've traveled the country and, and, and engaged and interviewed activists and organizers all over the country, what I found and I, and I tell this story in deep detail in my book is when I engage activists and organizers who are energized and organized, I often when I ask them, hey, with no judgment, share with me your plan for change. What I often hear back in response is a detailed expert level, Ph.D. level. I mean, I, I mean that in an endearing way, a Ph.D. level explanation of the problem. And here's where that goes wrong. Knowing the problem can help you develop a plan, but the problem and the plan are not the same thing. And what happens, particularly when we are reacting to injustice, is we often become masters, experts of our problems, but amateurs in the plans to solve them. And again, throw me right in that boat. Like I'm not I'm not pointing any finger at any group or any cause. I am telling you that our plan has to look more like a book, has to look more like a magazine, has to look more like a dissertation. Our plan can't be scribbled on the back of a napkin. It can't be on a single page of a website. It has to address the magnitude of the problem that we are facing. Do you hear me? You need energized people, you need organized people, and you need a nuanced, we need a nuanced, sophisticated plan for the problems we're trying to solve. And then I'll give you the last thing next. Break it down. We need energized people, we need organized people, we need sophisticated, detailed, nuanced plans that, that match the magnitude of the problem and the last thing that we need, it's essential. And, and here's the thing. If you get those first three things together, if you get energized people, organized people, and sophisticated plans, if you get those three things together, nine times out of 10, you're going to see some change. You are going to make some change. If you want to grow the depth of that change, the reach of that change, you can have energized people, organized people, sophisticated plans, but you're going to need the fourth thing. You're going to need resources. They have to be well financed. Again, they may not be as well financed as the, the people that we are or the people and systems we are organizing against. But they do have to be financially supported and we should not be ashamed of that. That's not embarrassing. Change costs money, takes resources. One of the things that I want us to do is to be able to identify the human resources that we have when we organize to find out the skills and experience and education of the people we have. So maybe perhaps we can leverage those things to save ourselves financially. But all plans for change have to be well resourced. And it is often, often the missing link when I look at causes For change, particularly when I look even at this cause of of mass incarceration and police brutality, like they are often woefully underfunded and lose because the people and systems and causes they are fighting against are well funded. And here's the thing. If we are going to organize in a way that works, we have to fight for change where we have energized people, organized people sophisticated plans and we have to have the money to actually fuel and fund them to hire the staff to do the outreach to control the narrative and the media in a way so that we can actually do it and that's if we're trying to pass a statewide ballot initiative if we're trying to get a powerful candidate elected these things cost money they require you and i to say when i look at my budget How am I budgeting for social change? How am I budgeting for social good? And that's my my request of each of you is to carve out a line item in your budget for change, for social change, for social good. It is as essential as your power bill and your water bill and your cell phone bill. Social change will only go as far as we fund it, and it needs to be well-funded if it's going to stick All right, everybody, listen I have to go I have already carried on Way longer than I anticipated But I'm going to lean back on this episode Many times When I want you all to understand How we are organizing for change Because I have one final Action step To share with you now Action Action, action. Still, Take action All right. You know, we've we've talked about not just the Eric Garner case, but all of the people and systems and structures that failed the family of Eric Garner. We've talked about how to make change. But I have one action step for you today. And about 18,000 of you have already taken it. But I am going to make a very serious announcement for all of you who already have tomorrow. Okay, so please, please, please. Sign up now at TheBreakdownCrew.com. We will never sell or share your information. It is private and confidential and stored securely. But we are going to build The Breakdown Crew into something very powerful. We're going to take those four lessons of energized people, and that's you. That's us. Energized people, we're going to turn our energized group into an organized group. We're going to develop some serious plans for change, and we're going to fund them. And we're going to make change together but you have to sign up now right now at the join us i'm hoping that we can cross 20,000 people and we're going to make this big announcement tomorrow take care everybody break it down break it down break it down break the break break, 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 break break down break the break down break the break break, break break down